This is the Chronically Fit Show. On this podcast, we speak to people achieving incredible sporting goals despite a chronic health condition. My name's David, and I have autoimmune hepatitis. I'm joined by health and fitness experts to better understand how physical activity can help manage chronic conditions like mine. Through the conversations I'm having with our guests, I'm better understanding how to approach my own health condition. So I hope you enjoy not just this show, but journey. Today's guest is Irish middle distance runner Michael McKillop. Michael competes in the T37 Disability Sports Classification, is a Paralympian and has a mild form of cerebral palsy. He was awarded an MBE in the 2020 New Year's Honours List for his services to disability awareness and athletics in Northern Ireland. And as you'll find out during the course of this interview, is really keen to make sure that Paralympians are seen as elite athletes. After the interview, I'm again joined by Marla and Natalie as we pick up on some of the key points from the interview, so please do stay tuned for that. So on this episode, I'm talking to Michael McKillop. Uh, you're one of the fastest cerebral palsy athletes of all time, currently holding world records for the T37, 800 and 1500 meters. And you're the first athlete with cerebral palsy to bl- to break sorry, the um, two minute barrier for 800 meters. So Michael, thanks for giving up some time and, and chatting to me. Yeah, thanks for having me on, on your podcast. It's uh, um, a pleasure to be here and hopefully we can uh, have a, a good chat. Look, I, I rattled through that that opening spiel like it was just anything, <laughs> and it's really not. But before we kind of get into any specifics, just in case someone is not familiar um, with with the Paralympics and 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 Paralympic or or Para Games, T T thirty seven. So so T is track, and thirty seven refers to the classification of my disability, and my disability mm-hmm. is cerebral palsy, as you said in, in the intro there. Um, and yeah, basically. That's pretty much all it is. Pretty simple. It's split up into lots of different categories in terms of your disability, like a visual impairment, like Jason Smith and um, kind of amputees like Johnny Peacock and stuff. So, yeah, I'm in the category of uh, recently they've kind of changed it now. So it's not just cerebral palsy in my class. It's cerebral palsy and a, a brain injury. Um, so it's kind of slightly different now, but that's the the sign of the times and a lot more people are being accepted into to para sport to give them an opportunity to perform at the elite level and whilst you do compete in para sports um you also uh compete uh against i suppose you know it's, it's funny isn't it saying able-bodied but you know otherwise able-bodied um athletes and you represented ireland in the iaf uh, european cross-country championships right yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I became the first disabled person um, from Europe to represent the country at a, an IAAF cross-country championships. So um, for me, uh, people ought to say that what's your greatest achievement in sport? And, and, and oh, yeah, of course, para sport is, is massive for me. But for me growing up, I was brought up able-bodied. I trained able-bodied and I raced able-bodied. So to be able to say to people that I've competed for Ireland in the able-bodied sport, I think a lot of pe- people take me more serious as an athlete. I know that's bad to say, but it's the honest truth. Um, there's still people out there that don't see para-sport as elite, and um, every day I'm a part of para-sport, I'm trying to drive that forward to make people aware that, um, yeah, we may have a disability, but we're an elite sport and we train um, and prepare and race like elite athletes. So look, if we if we take a quick rewind, how old were you when you when you received your diagnosis of cerebral palsy? Um, 
my parents got the diagnosis when I was two years and 10 months. Um, okay. But it was the year before that, at a year and 10 months, where they started to see signs of something really wasn't right. They noticed that I was kind of holding my right arm up. Um, it wasn't as, it didn't move as much as my left. And I kind of was, my hand was going in like in the fist clawed position. Um, and then they noticed that I was starting to walk with a limp. And over that year, from a year and 10 months to two, two years and 10 months, um, they seen it getting progressively worse. Um, and actually, in fact, whenever my parents went to the hospital the first time, uh, the doctor just turned around and said, it's a habit. Uh, he's only young. He's probably picked it up off someone and he's just trying to copy him. Um, and then eventually we got another consultation or my parents did. Um, and as soon as I walked through the door to see the, the consultant, um, he just turned around to my parents and said, he's either got CP or he's had a stroke. And just like that, my parents' lives changed forever because um, before that moment, they didn't have a disabled child. Um, and all of a sudden, they have a kid that's got a disability or a difference, and uh, they had to accept that. If you don't mind me asking, you know, you, you said that all of a sudden they've got a kid who's, who's got a disability. Was there anybody else in, in the extended family who had chronic health conditions? Did they have any kind of reference point at all? Or was this something totally new to both of them? They're completely new. Um, I think with cerebral palsy and the, or, or kind of ha- having the stroke kind of symptoms, um, I think it's all very um, individual in a way because mm-hmm. obviously you're affected. It depends on how much of the brain was affected and what part of the body it's going to affect. And um, I think I got started with oxygen at birth, which kind of brought on the brain damage, um, which then obviously gave me the cerebral palsy. So I, I think um, that that's the, the diagnosis that I was given as a, a young boy. And realistically, um, I don't really look too much into my disability. That's who I am. Um, that's what I was given. Um, and I just got to live the, live the best life that I have. And, I think looking back at how I grew up as a young boy and the the opportunities I was given from my family and my my parents, it, I kind of I couldn't have asked for a better a better um, yeah. life really, and and I've used my disability in the best possible way for my for my career. Look, you, you've already spoken there about the fact that you were brought up, you know, as 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 an able bodied athlete. Uh, and your your website, if you, if you go on uh, michaelmckillop.co.uk, it talks about the fact that your father was a good athlete and has been your mentor. Um, so I suppose some people might get diagnosed later in life and then they have that kind of adjustment of, well, hang on a minute, what's possible? Can I, do I have to stop doing things? Can I still do things? You've never known any different, but your parents obviously would have had that moment when when you had the diagnosis. And as you said, all of a sudden they've got a disabled kid of, do we wrap up, up in cotton wool? And obviously their reaction or your father's reaction around sport was to say, no, I want it, I want him to to be pushed and to excel. Um, where, where do you think that came from? Where do you think that confidence, I suppose, from your father to, to instill that in you came from? I, I think it's a case of any sports person or someone that takes part in sport, there's obviously adversity. There's always ups and down races. And for instance, for, for him, um, my mom was also an athlete as well. So, um, you could say that obviously the running aspect of my life has, has came through my parents, but I think uh, life isn't always simple um, and life doesn't always go in a straight line as everyone knows. And, and I think now sitting in a pandemic and um, we realize that how life can change so quickly and restrictions can be put on you. 
Um, and whenever my parents were told about di diagnosis, the doctor basically told them. Um, and I always have this quote, and I, I use it whenever I deliver my, my talks. And it's, they had two primary choices in life, to accept, accept the conditions as they exist or accept the responsibility for changing them. They, were, they didn't ask to have a disabled child. They didn't ask for that to happen to me. They were told that that was the case. And um, I think the way they looked at their life, it was kind of like, like you just said, were they going to wrap me up in cotton wool or were they going to give me an opportunity to, to produce the best life that I could have? And um, uh, they, they give me the opportunities and they have given me a platform to, to grow as a, a young boy. And they gave me the platform to perform at the things that I wanted to perform at. Um, and I think I fell into sport um, because it gave me a challenge. It didn't matter if I had my disability or not. It was about if I could beat, beat them, then I was the best. And that's the way I always look at it. So whilst they've instilled this incredible amount of confidence and belief in you, there must have been points growing up where it became apparent to you that there was something a little bit different. Did did you did you ever? I suppose you must have had some some moments where you kind of doubted yourself, where you felt a little bit weak, and obviously your parents' uh, ambitions for you would have helped. But I suppose you needed to also find drive yourself, right? Yeah, one hundred percent. And I think with cerebral palsy, obviously the brain damage affects the muscle tone, the muscle strength, muscle definition, um, especially on one of my my sides, which is my right side, that's affected. So obviously growing up, I was physically different to everybody else. Um, and I've come back to the word different. Um, but I was different to everybody else. And I think when you're growing up as a young kid, all you want to be is like every other kid. You want to be to engage. You want to be involved. You want to do every single thing that everyone else can. But obviously with having a condition like cerebral palsy, I wasn't able to do everything that everyone else could do. Um, so I had to adapt. Um, and I think... Whenever I had to adapt, I felt like I was being left out. Um, obviously, with my condition and with the brain, because it's so complex, um, I also got diagnosed growing up as a young boy with learning difficulties and speech problems. And I think, again, not only did I physically stand out, I mentally stood out as well because I couldn't do the same sums. I couldn't do the same spellings as, as, as all the other kids. So it was kind of that was probably a harder thing to take um, for me in a way um, because I knew I could beat them in the playground. I knew I could win in a race and I knew I could play football okay. Um, but whenever I was in a, an education setup, I always struggled. And and that for me was probably the, the test of could I adapt and, and to perform at my level and realize that it's okay to be different. It, it, it's okay not to be the best at every single thing in life. Uh, and it's being able to, to do the best that you can do. Um, and I had to, to do that on many occasions. Um, at the age of 14, I got diagnosed with epilepsy, um, which would then restricted my, the, the, me growing up as a teenager. I couldn't go and stay out late with my friends. I couldn't go to sleepovers. Um, lots of wee small things that came from, unfortunately, being diagnosed with cerebral palsy. Um, but, yeah. That's life. Um, I'm 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 quite well off in terms of how mild my disability is, but it does restrict me, but it doesn't stop me. Out of interest, you know, you, you mentioned there that your 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 condition is is reasonably mild. If anyone was to look at, at the gallery of your photos or, or to watch any footage, I, I would assume you know ninety percent of the time, maybe ninety nine percent of the time, just to look at you, 
you wouldn't immediately assume that you do have a disability. And do you, do you do you think that when people look at you and there isn't anything immediately unusual about you, it's difficult maybe for them to accept that you do have a chronic condition? Um, yeah, I, I think yeah, I think a lot of people kind of go, well, he's just got a limp. Um, like I remember back in 2008 when I went to my first Paralympic Games in in Beijing and uh, I won the race. I was only 18 years of age and under the YouTube video, it was kind of put on YouTube. Um, and under the video, I think like a month after I came home and I won, someone just goes, he's a fake. And I kind of like at the age of 18 to try and take something like that on board um, mm. of someone actually having an attack on me and basically saying that I I don't have a disability was quite quite a hard one to take. And I still kind of look at it and kind of go, how can someone like that just judge you just off the face of a video um, just because I don't look um the same as everybody else that doesn't mean that my condition doesn't affect me uh, in the same way and and that's why there's a, a, a classification classification criteria um within parasport to make it a, a level playing field that you're competing against guys at the same level of your disability uh, and severity so yeah for me that was probably one of my toughest moments within kind of accepting that people might see me differently um and judge me based on because I look able-bodied. Um, I don't have an amputated arm or don't have an amputated leg, so they don't have that immediate impact of oh you you're a Paralympian you're disabled, and they always expect more of me when I step on the starting line against people. Out of interest, how much of a transformative effect do you think the Beijing Games, the London Games, and to an extent that the Rio Games have had on people's understanding? And I suppose helping to mitigate and minimize those kind of comments and a lack of understanding around this? Yeah, I think uh, the more people kind of can come to terms with the fact that being different is okay uh, and being different is a good thing um, and realizing that just because we're different with a disability doesn't mean that we can't perform and train like elite athletes. Um, I think uh, going way, way, way back, obviously, everyone would automatically go men's sports better than female sports. Um, and you, you've now seen a generational change where actually female sport is being looked at on a level playing field as male sport. Um, and now I'm in a position where I would like to see across all boards that male, female and para sport is one and that we can be seen as elite athletes um competing um just with the, the different categorization of, of of the disability that i have but i think that will take time um like you've seen 2008 um the paralympic games was not shown live in ireland um in 2012 it was shown live 2016 was shown live so hopefully become 2021 when we go to tokyo hopefully fingers crossed all be going well and that it can be shown live for longer and and that's mm. the process that we're we're in within the, the island of ireland is trying to get people engaged with parasport um over kind of great britain have done such an amazing job and, and i think we we talked lately about kind of the last leg being a big massive contributing factor of why mm. people look at parasport now and can actually understand it slightly better um, without having the ignorance of, oh, they've got a disability, they can't do anything. And they do now see people as superheroes in a way, or they see them as 
transformers or robots and and their the ability to perform um but i think also with a disability say like cerebral palsy like you said not many people would pick up on it um it's quite hard for for athletes with those disabilities to try and get across to the general public that they do have a condition and they do have a, a disability and they have to put up with kind of their condition to perform at a elite level um not just the, the athletes with obviously amputated arms legs and stuff like that but you talk quite openly about the fact that you know your your condition is part of you um but it's not necessarily something that you that you understand you know you're you're not you're not a medical doctor and i suppose there will be people listening to this who have a condition that they're trying to come to terms with and they're trying to work out how do I manage this? How much is too much? How much is not enough? And and so on. How have you learnt enough about your condition to be able to push yourself, but also live with it and manage it? Um, I think a lot of people are at different stages in terms of, like you said, um, you've just recently been diagnosed. I've been diagnosed for yeah. 28 years. So I think it's a lot, it's, it's, it's all individual basis and how you can cope with it. And I think coping mechanisms is a, a good thing. Um, how I get to know my disability is wake up every single day, um, and try, um, and do every single thing possible. I can, if I need to try and do it, I will try. If I can't do it, well, then I'll ask for help. Um, and I think with people trying to be diagnosed with conditions, they go to on Google um, and they type in their condition and then they hear horror stories, they hear positive stories and they can take what they want away from that. But there's no better way of finding out what you're dealing with or yeah, there's no way, there's not a better way of finding out what you're dealing with is how you live with it. And how you personally adapt it yourself, um, and I think the medical professions is there to help you um, and to guide you in the best possible way. But they can't live your life for you. You have to have the positives that come out of it. You, for most people, obviously, given a condition, they don't want to have that condition. No one wants to have a condition. No one has wants to have a disability. But it's how you adapt your life to what you have been given. And can you live that in the best possible way? And that's the way I've lived my life. Um, and I, I, I can't, I can't lie. I've had one of the, probably the most amazing lives that I have had. I've lived um, in many different countries, and I've got to travel the world, and, and that for me is, is is something special. But you you talk very positively um, about the opportunities that you've had afforded to you and, you know, you've done some amazing things. Um, but you also talk about accepting and understand, you know, and, and, and coming to terms with, with the condition. There are people out there who have conditions and they don't want to come to terms with them or it takes them a lot longer to, to come to terms with that condition. And there's remarkably few men that seem to be as happy to talk openly. And I suppose it is sharing a bit of a, of, of a vulnerable side. And we all know that unfortunately, you know, take, take away chronic health, take away sport, men in general, kind of suicide rates amongst young men in the UK in particular are very, very high. Um, why do you think it is though that more men, because your story is such, is such a positive reaffirming one, but even you yourself have said that it's not something that you've openly spoken about on things like podcasts and so on before. Why is it men don't share as much as they as they could? I suppose. 
I think masculinity. I, I can't even say that word, but I think most viewers will know what I'm talking about. But I mm. think um, I think it's a case of they 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 don't want to look weak. Um, they don't want to seem like they they can't achieve something or they can't do everything. Um, and I think whenever I came to terms with my disability, then I understood and knew what what my life was about. Um, and I seen myself as an able-bodied person growing up, but whenever I realized that actually my disability was going to be a positive for me in my life and I could use it in, in the best possible way, and that was sport. Um, but I think people trying to understand the condition and accepting it and talking about it is the best way about it um, because you're not the only person in the world with that one condition. There's hundreds of people. There's thousands of people. And for me with cerebral palsy, um, there's so many people not on even on the island of Ireland, but across the world that have the same condition as me um, and that you can listen to them, you can speak to them and you can hear their stories and you might be able to adapt your life or you might see something that they do and you really like and you can try it in your life. And it's being able to kind of pick and choose what you want to do in your life because you're in control. You're in control of what you do in your life. Um, and if you can take the positives and negatives from other people and make it work for you, then that's the most important thing. But I guess I struggled with my mental health um, back 2014-15. Um, and I was on the verge of suicide because I didn't talk about my, my mental health issues. And um, at the end of 2015, I eventually gave in um, and I, I spoke to someone. And I always say now that... Being able to talk to someone really did save my life because all I seen myself was I was the only one with this thoughts. I was only this person with how, how I'm feeling right now and there's no no one's going to kind of help me or fix me because I'm different or feel like this. But once I did give in and I spoke to someone, it was a real relief and it gave me an opportunity to then talk about my problems with my my wife now Um and my parents and stuff and it's just allowed us to to be a little bit more relaxed about it i know that i have a mental health condition and i know it's always going to be there but it's just being able to know when i need to talk to someone or if i need to talk to someone but i just mm. need to be on guard that i can talk it's interesting you say give in because i would have never classified it or characterized it as that i, I suppose you know it's for, for someone who's who's who does uh, struggle with their mental health it, it must take an incredibly or it, or it must take an incredible amount of courage to reach out and to talk so just what what was the trigger for you deciding to get to talk to someone in the end um i grew up in an old boys school in belfast and um basically every boy knew everyone's everyone knew everyone's kind of like story and background and where they grew up and this stuff. and two of my classmates um committed suicide at the age of like 15 16 um um one of them i was very close with when i was growing up as a young boy and i look back now and the time that i went and spoke to someone a psychologist and my, my gp and tried to get it all sorted out was the time where i realized i was getting to the breaking point that i wanted to to have those thoughts of of suicide but i witnessed what my friend did and not only did he do it to himself, but obviously he did it to, 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 he didn't see a way out. He couldn't find that way out. So he decided to, to do what he did. And 
it's a very sad feeling to know that he couldn't find the strength um, to 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 get, ask for help and realize that it was okay to ask for help. Um, but that was the the turning point for me. It was I didn't want to I didn't want to do what he did um, because I felt like that would be another life wasted in a way. Um, mm-hmm. And I just wanted to live my life um, with him in it in terms of it's, it's okay to talk about things that are not necessarily nice to talk about. But mm-hmm. if we can get it out there and we can push the boundaries of mental health and make it people realize that it is okay to talk, um, then that was whenever I realized that it was time to to wise up and to to talk as much as it was probably embarrassing at the start. But as soon as I spoke to psychologists and they reassured me and they made me understand what I was going through, he made me understand what why I was feeling like that, and he showed me a training plan as such. I put it in a sporting context now of how we can progress to get better, to make you feel better in terms of my fitness, how I could get fitter. Um, so that's the way I look at it, and it helped. And the first step um, of that training program was being open, frank, and honest and speaking to my parents for the first ever time about my mental health condition. And ever since then, um, I wouldn't say I'm 100% perfect in terms of my mental health, but I'm getting closer, and it's only going to take time to allow myself to understand that it is okay to to be not okay yeah i wish more people had the attitude well, more people realize that you know we're all on a sliding scale and it's you know I, I, i'm not sure how many people are 100 perfect uh, yeah. even if they feel great so no it's really it's really positive to hear you talk about that in a very open way look I, i've been asking all of all of our guests what's the one thing they wish they could have told themselves when they got that diagnosis? Obviously you grew up with your diagnosis, but another question I have been asking that's kind of closely related to, to it is what's the most valuable thing that you've learned along the way in the years of dealing with your condition. And that's something absolutely that you can, you can add to. Yeah. Um, I'm obviously with my condition and it obviously made me different. Um, accepting there's two words, accepting and difference and allowing that to be the case because I have a quote um, that I like to use and it's kind of like, what if Michael Jordan would have quit? Well, he did quit. He retired. But what if he had quit when he went to, when he didn't get on the first in high school? He would never have made Space Jam. And I look at it and kind of go, he made Space Jam. Space Jam was one of the most amazing movies growing up for kids in the 90s. So that something wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for him being a basketball player in high school. So you just see the correlation going, flowing through to creating something magnificent. And it's accepting that not everything is perfect in life, but you can create something amazing through your journey and living with the condition that you have or the issue that you may have. And the space jam of people's lives could be anything. It could be getting your first time job. You could be traveling the world. And for me, my space jam was winning that Paralympic gold medal uh, in in Beijing, um, London, and, and Rio. And and for me, that is the really understanding of 
knowing when it is time that you've achieved it. Out of interest, is is that your 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 single greatest achievement? It's it's something again. I've asked everyone the final question. You know, your biggest achievement in sport or life doesn't matter which. But you know, given given the chronic condition, is it that? Is it is it competing uh, in the European Cross Country Championships? What what kind of stands out for you as being that kind of that moment, that space jam for you? Um, if uh, my wife's going to listen back to this, I probably should get, say getting married to my wife. Um, <laughs> very, but, very, very uh, <laughs> pragmatic but, answer there, yes. But um, off topic of, of that, that amazing day that I had two years ago, um, probably for me, I think everyone kind of would go, oh, how can you turn down um, Paralympic gold medals? Um, but for me, as a disabled person, to be able to step up the starting line with elite athletes um, at an IAAF European cross-country event, I think, realistically, in my personal opinion, that is the top of the tree. That is the greatest achievement for me anyway, um, because it showed, showed the people it didn't matter I had a disability on that day. It was about who wanted to be the best and who could who could achieve the best on that day. And to be able to run alongside some of these great athletes was a memory I'll never forget. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you, Michael. Thank you so much for giving up some time. And uh, good luck. Uh, now, fingers crossed for for Tokyo in, in 2021 and, and presuming it takes place, good luck. I'm, I'm hoping that we can catch up with you beforehand and see how, you, how you're getting on in the preparation beforehand. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And hopefully your listeners can take something away from my story and realise that it's okay to not be okay. A couple of years ago, Michael and Jacob, two friends from London, were both thinking about their consumption and sustainability as a whole. Michael, a professional footballer at the time, realised he had no options when it came to sustainable sportswear. Overconsumption and underuse was all too common. Hilo was born, a sportswear brand fighting for the planet by changing mindsets. They started with a running shoe made with seven natural materials, and the shoe could be recycled at the end of its life. As a company, they've offset their carbon to beyond zero, making them carbon negative. You can find out more about Hilo and support their mission at hiloathletics.com. That's H-Y-L-O. We support the Hilo movement. So joining me again after that conversation with Michael, we've got Natalie and Marla. Uh, we won't do introductions because I'm going to tell people to go back and listen to the first uh, episode of the series where we interviewed Lavisa. So uh, we can get that out of the way and jump straight into the conversation. How are you both? Very well, thank you, David. How are you? <laughs> Fine. Recording on a Sunday. Uh, I shouldn't complain. I've, I've asked you both to do this. so <laughs> <laughs> You two can complain, but I'll, 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 I'll just kind of like accept it. Um First of all, Natalie, um, how challenging is it to run to to uh, a two minute eight hundred meters? That that to me seems I run fairly regularly, and that sounds insane. Yeah, I mean, when <laughs> this guy is like the fastest cerebral palsy athlete of all time for a start, and you know broke the two minute record for eighteen hundred meters, and I'm thinking, you know, I mean, I, there's not a lot of people that could do that well abled, you know, so. I think that's pretty insane, to be fair. Um, and it's he should be completely respected, you know, whether you know um, less able or not. What he has achieved is absolutely like out of this world. It's amazing. Yeah. He's done. Yeah. Look, I, I make that kind of as a glib point at the beginning, but for that very reason that he talks about the fact that 
he feels that he has to compete in European Championships, able-bodied um, for Ireland to gain acceptance as an elite athlete, and that para sport is not seen as elite. But regardless of any context, running that fast is ridiculous. Yep. <laughs> yeah, no, he's like insanely fast. Hussein Bolt fast. <laughs> I suppose it's it's one of the one of the things that listening to him i i kind of that came through both on the health and the fitness side I don't, look i don't i don't know what you guys picked up upon but when he was talking about whenever he had to adapt he felt like he was missing out and then it was like how do you encourage people with limitations uh you know we and i was thinking well we all carry knocks and uh and we all have strengths and we all have weaknesses but having to accept and adapt and and be flexible to his needs, both on a health and a fitness and a mental stage throughout his life, was probably the central theme of everything he's talking about. It's very difficult. I mean, he was diagnosed at such a young age. Um, I think it was two years and 10 months he had his diagnosis. So to try and encourage a child, you know, to adapt and accept the way you are and try and push yourself no matter what is an incredibly difficult challenge for any sort of mentor, teacher, parent to do so. Um, and from listening to Michael's interview um, and learning about how his parents were like a huge support, you know, they instilled a massive confidence um, and belief in him. And I think that was really the two things that got him through it. Um, if I was training somebody, it would be down to uh, progress over time. You know, I'd say you've, you've got to stick this out for a minimum of one month if you want to see some sort of change in your body or your fitness or, um, you know, just any sort of result. You're going to it's time. But you try and explain that to a child. You know, it, it's it's like anything. A child has got most of them, you know, the mem the memory span, <laughs> the attention span of a goldfish. But I think. His parents, what they did was absolutely incredible and they, they kept him going, you know, and um, he talks about them an awful lot throughout his interview and how they were like his inspiration and the fact that they were both athletes themselves really pushed him to try as hard as he could. I mean, I, I don't, I personally don't have children, so I don't know where that sort of power comes from. But I think if you do have a kid, you, I don't know, you have more love, you have more support in you to, to help them and you'll do anything and everything you can. Um, me as a as a trainer myself, if somebody doesn't want to put the time and effort in, I'm like, well, sodger then, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I always give my best to people, but the thing is, if people don't want to help themselves, it's incredibly difficult to help them if they're not willing to give you anything back. So it's incredible. As a child, he was able to show how much determination he really had. And his parents to sort of instill that throughout his life, and he became the athlete he is today. Yeah, and look, they make the, the he kind of makes the comparison, doesn't he, between sport and life, and saying that there's always adversity in sport, so there's always adversity in life, and why is it any different? And I suppose that that was that kind of central push. Just talking on his parents, Marla. One thing that amazed me was the fact that they went and saw one doctor who said he's mimicking someone. He's he's caught, you know this limp is 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 copying some something that he's seen they go and get a second opinion he walks through the door and another doctor goes he's either had a stroke or he's got cerebral palsy i don't want to attack the, the medical professional that's certainly not the aim of this show but it is interesting to hear that you can get that that wildly different diagnosis or prognosis rather maybe from from two different medical professionals and i suppose if you are a parent and you're looking at your child and they have got something that's unusual about them 
maybe you don't always have the confidence to to go and get that second opinion exactly exactly and and it's kind of that that um what you discussed there kind of smacked you in the face about almost the 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 stigma the lack of understanding the the difficulties faced by by people all over the world in getting the diagnosis, getting the treatment, moving forward and progressing that. If you can't get the if you can't get the fundamental basics of what is going on physiologically, like down to the T, then how can you build on that and adapt your life, get like get moving? Because society won't adapt around you because we're living in this world which is really not geared up to be able to 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 adapt to everyone's needs. But if you don't have that basis, then how can you? And I don't know what the answer is because honestly, I think that so much in healthcare is left to the will of the friends, family, loved ones of the person that is unwell to keep pushing, keep pushing for another scan, another diagnosis, another opinion. And who who is the people that get left at the end of that? It's it's gonna be not the people with loads of money, is it? They're going to be the ones that are going to carry on going. It's the, it's the people in society that we should be extending a hand to most. But Marla, sticking with you for a second, um, obviously as, as a doctor, you're, you were used to treating stuff that we can physically see. Cerebral palsy is one of those, but he, he talks a lot as well about mental health. And that is something that when it came up, kind of surprised me during the interview, but I was, I was, I was pleased to speak about it because it's something that I've known for a few years. You know, men don't talk about this stuff as openly as they should do. Um, what, what stood out to you in, in that aspect where we were talking about mental health? I just so much respect, like the utmost respect for him about talking so openly about the difficulties and how he responded to each of the different points in his life and how throughout his journey, different things have been, I want to say barriers, but have been there um, you know, and in his life and he's had to work around it and carry on and keep going. And I think that for him to speak so openly, as you say, as a man in this climate, it's very difficult to come forward and talk so openly without fear of judgment. And especially when you've already got, you know, other things stacked against you, you're trying to make it in the world, you're trying to be seen as someone that can be respected in the same light as the well-bodied athletes as well, right? So for him to stand up and say, look, guys, listen, this is my story, this is my voice, and I'm going to use this in this productive way. I mean, I, I check off my metaphorical hat to him. He is brilliant, really brilliant. It was really interesting as well to hear him kind of liken mental health and slowly getting better to a sports programme. Yeah, I mean, it's he's he's got a point. Um, going back to like what Marla said, you know, um, it's it's a thing about you know masculinity uh, blokes not wanting to talk about that sort of thing and they don't want to appear weak i think that's like the main uh, that's sort of the main theme in this um and it just sort of um it just sort of aspires around those two areas really um what are you what are, what are your thoughts marla on the sports program you mentioned um i think it's super important to to see mental health as something that can be that can be moved forward and I think that the way that he described the fact that it that, that you can almost put yourself into a training program right so how can you wake up every morning do something productive that was going to help you and your mental health to improve it is so easy to be stuck in a rut and you know in episode one we were talking a lot about the dark days and about how we really have to keep going when the days are when the days are tough and I think that 
this really builds on what we were talking about then because it's like right so practically how do you do it you've got to give yourself a really regimental routine so that you don't get stuck yeah it's like a rehabilitation program isn't it you're almost uh training yourself into into succeeding really um you know you can apply that through any walk of life i believe not just in sport or fitness, but, you know, in your in your mental health, which is, you know, the main point of what we're discussing right now. But um, I think I think that was a really good way to describe it. Actually, um, he had some he had some really, really good points. Um, I, I'm sort of moving the conversation away a little bit just because um, he, uh, he mentioned about, you know, generational change, um, you know, going into like a sports program it applies to like male and female. And he was saying that, um, you know, across the years, uh, female sport is becoming like on par with male sports. Um, I did my dissertation on this actually um, about female, uh, well, sportscasters not being seen as prominent or maybe as knowledgeable as a male sportscaster. Um, but it's the same ethos within, um, within sport as well. And female athletes over the years have not been taken as seriously um, but you know, the whole point of it was that he was saying eventually he'd like to see Paralympians being seen as just as good, you know, um, because at the moment, unfortunately, there are people that think, oh, well, they're not as abled. They're, um, they're not elite. They don't train as hard as uh, somebody who is well abled. And I just think that brings it back down, brings it back to the sports program. You know, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've got, your abilities or conditions, you know, if you train, you rehabilitate and you stick to a program over time, no matter what, you're going to reach your goals. So I think that's like the main point. Sorry, a very long winded thing. <laughs> but no, no, that no. I think is, uh, I think really is really key to take away from that. Yeah. And look, I mean, I, I tend to think that I'm pretty robust and I'm fairly good um, mentally, but you know I've taken a hell of a lot of drugs over the last six months, and there are days where you feel a bit flat because you haven't slept and whatever else. And you can see how someone, you know, I think it's quite difficult to see to imagine that someone who's won international sporting events and has seen such success can struggle. But actually, you can you can see that it doesn't probably it doesn't take too much in someone's life to begin to affect it and have knock on effects and consequences and. You know, we, we are all on a scale. It's not as it's not as easy as saying that you're either good or you're not. And there there are those nuances, and and stuff can compound and pile up, right? So, it's important that people are aware of that and talk about it openly, and and don't and try and tear down some of that stigma. That wasn't very <laughs> eloquent. But. No, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a very good point. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, look, um, I think I think we'll wrap up there. Again, thank you for joining me, both of you. If anyone has any questions, uh do please get in touch with the show, Instagram, The Chronically Health Show, uh, Twitter. I will share all of our handles. But um, we'll be back next week uh, with yet more insight from another athlete. Um, next week, we're going to be talking about GBS, which is a particularly nasty um, condition that uh, we'll go into in a bit more detail. But until then, thanks for listening. And thank you, Mara, and thank you, Natalie.